This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Progressive Faith Sermon with Dr. Roger Ray, The Majority Report, and our national conversation about conversations about race and featuring activism from the International Rescue Committee. Let's turn to a clip from a CNN interview on Sunday morning with Yasser Louati from the Collective Against Islamophobia in France. CNN anchors John Vose and Aisha Sisay spent several minutes grilling their guest on the role of the Muslim community in the Paris attacks. It seems to me that this was a pretty big plan. Surely someone beyond the seven guys who have been killed over the last 48 hours would have to have known something, and that was probably within the Muslim community, but yet no one said anything. Sir, the Muslim community has nothing to do with these guys. Nothing. We cannot justify ourselves for the actions of someone who just you know, claims to be Muslim. The, uh, our you know, secret services knew about these guys, and again, just like during the January attacks, it turned out they were all you know, on a blacklist somewhere, somehow, in, on, on a desk. So right now, we can't take responsibility for anything. Right now, what these terrorists are blaming us for is belonging to the, the, to, to the French nation. And the si- sure. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but what is the responsibility within the Muslim community to identify what is happening within their own ranks when it comes to people who are obviously training and preparing to carry out mass murder? No, 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 sir, no, 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 they, they, they were not from our ranks. If they were trained, they were trained abroad. And what these terrorists are blaming our country for is for its failed foreign policy. When the interview concluded with uh, Luati, the anchors, John Vose and Aisha Sasei, had this discussion. You know, I'm yet to hear, uh, you know, the condemnation from the Muslim community on this. But I mean, I, you know, see. again, the point he's making is it's not our fault. But the fact of the matter is when these things happen, the finger of blame is pointed at the Muslim community. And so... You have to be preemptive. It's coming from the community. You've got to take a standard... The word responsibility comes yeah, to mind. it just comes to mind. You, you can't shirk that. That was CNN. Glenn Greenwald, um, you're a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Um, can you talk about what they said and how they treated this Muslim civil rights activist in Paris? Honestly, that interview is so despicable that it almost leaves me speechless. I think that's probably the 10th or 11th time I've heard it, and it's still actually hard to believe that any human beings, let alone people calling themselves journalists, would say any of the horrific things that they said. Um, I mean, I know Yasser, and I mean, he's a... He's, you know, he's a civil rights activist in Paris. Um, he's very smart. He's very educated. He's very um, savvy um, about the law and about politics. And so to go on and essentially accuse him of bearing responsibility for terrorist attacks because he's Muslim and the people who did it are Muslim, I mean, it's so reprehensible. Um, you know, there's I was so many thinking, lies Glenn, that those journalists Glenn, said. Too. I, I was thinking yeah. about after Timothy McVeigh blew up the Oklahoma City building, um, if they had brought on white Christian male minister after minister and saying, he is from your ranks, what do you say? 
Yeah, or imagine if they, you know, if they did a story on uh, the Israeli who went to the gay and lesbian pride parade in Jerusalem a couple months ago and stabbed six people, and then every time they had a Jewish guest on, they said, um, why didn't you Jews, who obviously knew about this, do anything to stop it, and why aren't you as Jews condemning this, and you bear responsibility, they would be fired before the interview was over. Um, they also said that, you know, no Muslims are condemning this, which is a total lie. Every leading Muslim organization in the West issued statements immediately condemning the Paris attacks like they always do in these cases. I wish they actually wouldn't do it because it bolsters the idea that they have the obligation. Um, but the reality is that they did. So, I mean, that's just one small part is, is the lie that these journalists told. Um, but, you know, and then the other part is, is to say you as Muslims obviously knew about this plot and had the responsibility to stop it and yet failed to do so. All of the leading world's intelligence agencies with tens of billions of dollars and massive surveillance infrastructure had no idea about this plot, and yet they're telling Yasser Luwadi that he and every other Muslim in France obviously knew about it and should have stopped it and, and, and is guilty for not doing so. It's, it's really despicable, but it's, it's, it's what's in the ether. It's, it's absolutely the really scary climate um, that has emerged in the wake of Paris, an extremely anti-Muslim um, strain of animosity that we've seen historically in the past, and that is both ugly and, and really dangerous. Republicans, including Mike Huckabee, uh, say that, oh, there's no vetting process here. The, the administration has no idea what they're doing. They have no vetting process at all. That's why we can't let any of the refugees in. It'll be dangerous. Chris Christie saying can't let the refugees in. Can't even let anybody, any kids. I mean, you never know when a, says not, not even anybody under the age of five. Never know when a three-year-old is going to be super dangerous in a sleeper cell, right? I mean, uh, some of the babies would really be sleeper cells because they'd be sleeping in their babies. But no, 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 you can't trust any of these people unless, of course, they're Christian, according to Ted Cruz, right? So um, is it true that we have no vetting process in America? Uh, every news organization that's looked into it, and here I'm going to quote BuzzFeed, says the exact opposite. Quote, the U.S. has one of the most robust security screening processes in the world for potential refugees. The complex process takes an average of 18 to 24 months. Some of the procedures that they do, they have to do over and over again because they got to renew them because the process takes so long. Now, in Europe, they just have case files and that's it. Here, we go ad nauseum with check after check. Here, let me give you a brief list of some of the things that we do to vet the refugees that are coming in here. Okay, Multiple high-level security checks, biometric screening, a mandatory interview with the Department of Homeland Security, a medical screening, a cultural orientation program, which consists of videos on housing, employment, education, and hygiene, among other topics. We teach them how to be clean. I mean, think about how insulting that is before we let them in, and that is usually one and a half to two years after the vetting process has begun. The Republicans are unbelievable liars when they say there's no vetting process. Oh, God, we'll never know. 
Who are they letting in? I don't know. There's no checks. They're just letting walking them in. That is not true. We have one of the toughest vetting processes in the whole world for refugees. And they, you think that they're going to bring all of Syria. And there's over one and a half million refugees, by some estimates, far larger than that. We're going to take in, at most, according to President Obama, wow, big liberal, 10,000 of them. We started the war in Iraq that created ISIS. That's where ISIS rose out of. Now they're causing this enormous refugee problem. We're taking in 10,000. And it's going to take us two years to do that because of this vetting process. And on top of all that, today John Kerry, our Secretary of State, said that uh, the vetting process will not be made even harder because the Republicans yelled at it. It'll be, quote, super vetting. I mean, an extraordinary levels of vetting. <laughs> and even that sliver of humanity and compassion we show after we came in there like a bull in a china shop into the middle of the Middle East and created chaos. And even that tiny sliver of compassion, way too much for the Republicans. No way. Don't let them in. Don't let them in. Trump says today, Oh, they got sand in Syria. It's nice over there. Huckabee says, you don't want to bring them to Minnesota. It's cold. They, they like the temperatures over there. But they're running from ISIS, the people you say are the equivalent of Nazis, the worst people on earth, the people who just did the Paris attacks, who brought down a Russian plane. They're running from the wicked. Huckabee claims you have passed to read your Bible. In Psalms it says, give shelter to people running from the wicked. It's almost a direct commandment to you to let these people in and show some sort of compassion and civility and humanity. But no, they're not going to do any of that. Instead, they're going to lie about our vetting process, you know, lie about everything, and make sure that we don't let anybody else from our country in. Sick people, sick and deeply un-American. We have seen, as a reaction to the attacks in Paris over the weekend, a very strong anti-immigrant, anti-refugee reaction. We've seen 31 governors, mostly Republicans in the United States, say that they are going to be refusing to resettle refugees against the law. And we talked about that yesterday, and we'll talk about it more. The point is, though, we have seen this resurgence of anti-refugee sentiment. And French President Francois Hollande announced that not only will France honor its commitment to take in tens of thousands of refugees, he is going to do it in spite of the concerns being raised by the ultra-right-wing anti-immigrant nationalists in France after these deadly attacks in Paris over the weekend. Not only is Francois Hollande going to maintain the initial commitments he had made with regard to resettling refugees, he is increasing the number of refugees that they're going to take in, saying that France is going to welcome 30,000 refugees, previously saying they were going to welcome 24,000 refugees, adding 6,000 additional refugees, saying also that they would invest over 
over $53 million to develop housing for refugees, strict security checks, strict screening, etc., etc. Still, though, this being hailed by some, Lewis, as a move to not do what it is that ISIS wants to see happen, which is they want anti-refugee, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-Syrian attitudes to be the reaction because then they are further creating a a sort of pretext to justify further action. Yeah, I think the number one goal of attacks like this is to uh, to kill people and and cause fear. But of course, there there is always another objective. There is always another motive, and that is uh, exactly what you just said. And so I think this is brilliant. But of course, Dave, uh, there are plenty of people in France, plenty of people in the United States, as we'll talk about on the bonus show, whose lives are just governed by fear at this point. And and, and that fear, in great part, is the fear that ISIS fighters could pose as refugees, come up with right. a story that would qualify them for refugee asylum, and then, once legally in a country, carry out attacks. It could be Europe, it could be in the U.S., etc. And this, these fears were stoked by the Syrian passport that was found near the body of one of the men involved in the Paris attacks. But a number of experts have now said that it appears that that was a planted passport uh, a fake passport designed to do exactly what it is that the right is doing, which is saying no more refugees, no more immigrants. Let's also remember that with regard to this number uh, that France is going to be accepting, this is mostly a symbolic number, right? I mean, Sweden, which has one-seventh the population of France, took in more than the 30,000 refugees that France will take in. So per capita, that's that's a 200 times greater rate of accepting refugees in Sweden than in France. I'm not belittling the importance of it. I'm just saying it is more symbolic saying this has happened, but we are not now going to become these anti-refugee, anti-immigrant individuals. We are going to do what it is that we were committed to doing, period. And that's really the important thing, the number itself less so. Congressmember Ellison, you are the first Muslim congressmember in the U.S. House of Representatives. Last week, the House passed legislation um, that was introduced by Republican lawmakers uh, to, at the moment, stop Iraqi and Syrian refugees from resettling uh, here in the United States. Respond. Well, um, it was a, a piece of legislation motivated by fear, motivated by, uh, you know, xenophobia, motivated by uh, irrationality. Look, we've had 750,000 refugees come into this country since the year 2001. None of them, not one, has been engaged in terrorism at all. Some people will say, well, what about the Sarnayev brothers? Their parents were asylees. They were not. They got radicalized in another way. The refugees themselves have not posed any threat to this country. Why then are we going to revamp our whole refugee resettlement program, uh, which is incredibly rigorous in terms of the vetting process, simply because of intimidation from Daesh. This is a bad thing to do. Daesh 
operates on the assumption... Daesh meaning... uh, Meaning that what people sometimes refer to ISIS, the Islamic State, I maintain they're neither Islamic nor a state. So I call them Daesh. But the point is that they operate under a philosophical underpinning that the West is at war with with Islam and Islam is at war with the West in a defensive posture. This is a completely false narrative. But when our country is saying, we'll take refugees, but only if they're Christian. We don't want any Iraqis and Syrians. Aren't those people Muslim and couldn't terrorists be amongst them? What we're doing is helping Daesh argue to people around the world that we uh, are not fair, that we don't believe in the values we profess, and and that, that they can make us change our system based on threats. And this is feeding their overall narrative. Look, if Muslims, if, if, if Daesh is providing some sort of Islamic state, why are Muslims running from it? Oh, I don't know. What about the rapes and the beheadings and everything else they do? These are totalitarians. They crave power, and that is what they crave. And, you know, sadly, the Iraq war, which is a fatal mistake of the Bush administration, unleashed some of these ugly forces that now are incredibly difficult to deal with. What we should do is continue to live up to our values. We should maintain law and order, and what I mean by that is not just shifting the law to address people from a minority religion, but to just maintain our posture uh, as a country that is a haven to refugees. We shouldn't adjust that simply because of fear. And candidates like uh, Donald Trump are not helping promote safety and national security when they say things like, um, we should ID all the Muslims. When they say things like Muslims or Arab Americans were cheering 9-11, an absolute lie. And people like uh, Ben Carson calling the refugees rabid dogs. These things are incredibly helpful to Daesh, and they are detrimental to refugees and Americans. So um, I think we've got to all calm down. We've got to have some courage. We've got to face this threat in unity and based on values of inclusion, equality under the law, uh, and and, and, uh, basic democracy. Democracy now, how about that? It's come from sorrow in the street The holy places where the races meet From the homicidal bitching That goes down in every kitchen To determine who will serve and who will eat From the wells of disappointment Where the women kneel to pray For the grace of God in the desert here In the desert far away Democracy is coming to the USA. There were eight known criminals. There were probably 10 or 15 accomplices, some of whom were living in Belgium and some of whom admittedly had managed to get in with Syrian refugees. But they are not representatives of Islam. They are violent criminals and they should be treated as such. We do not need to take a pound of flesh out of 100,000 Muslims for every one Muslim that turns out to be a crazy, violent criminal. ISIS announced that they would infiltrate the flow of refugees from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan and take their fight to Europe. And in spite of Europe's best efforts at vetting the millions of refugees who have streamed into their countries, 
ISIS managed to make good on their pledge, and they brought a nightmare to Paris. Vetting refugees who arrive in large numbers with no papers. Obviously, they're fleeing a country, so they don't have a passport. They don't have identification papers. And if they don't, by fingerprint or some other means, have a known criminal record, it's pretty much impossible to find the ones that are infiltrating among refugees. So then, is the answer to turn away millions of refugees fleeing violence and starvation? There will be people in France who say yes. There are lots of people, including people who think that they should be president of this entire nation of immigrants who at one time came here either in chains or came here fleeing starvation and poverty in another country. There will be people who think they ought to be in charge of this nation of immigrants who tell you that we should lock up our borders and not accept any of these desperate people trying to flee from violence in their home country, to turn away tens of thousands to avoid letting a dozen terrorists slip through. Because some people are very, very concerned about being virtuous as long as it involves no personal risk or no personal sacrifice. But if you are going to do the right thing in any crisis, there is personal danger, and it can come to visit any one of us. It's not a small thing. Paris just lost 120 lives of mostly young people who were out having a good time on Friday night. More than 300 were shot and wounded. That's huge. It is serious. That's almost as many people as will be shot and killed in the United States this week. But it is, is it enough then to motivate us to turn our backs on millions of people among whom there are thousands who are innocent who will die if they are not allowed to escape Syria and Afghanistan. The fact remains that the majority of what is called terrorism in our news industry does come uh, from people who claim Islamic uh, faith as their motivation. Modern Islam has challenges to face because it isn't just those who become terrorists, but it is also a problem with those who are sympathetic with the extremists. It's a real issue. It's not a small one. Shortly after 9-11, the most common name given to children in the Middle East was uh, Osama. So there is a degree of sympathy with Muslim extremists that really does need to be addressed, and it's an issue about which Muslims need to be talking to each other. But across the globe, Muslim groups have been condemning this attack in Paris. We should never assume that just because it's not heavily reported that there is sympathy in general. Most Islamic groups that have spoken up since the Friday attacks in Paris have summarily condemned this and say, not in my name. You are not representing me. Not in our name. Will you invade countries, bomb civilians, kill more children, letting history take its course over the graves of the nameless? Not in our names. Will you erode the very freedoms you have claimed to fight for? Not by our hands. Will we supply weapons and funding for the annihilation of families on foreign soil? Not by our mouths. Will we let fear silence us?
let's talk about this this clip right now because this is this is what CNN does better than anything else that they do. They do dumb chatter. They do meaningless programming. That's all true. They do both sides do it. That's right. But nobody, but nobody does ginning up and counting down to war like CNN. I mean, this is this is how they made their uh their hay uh back in the day, as it were. Was it uh was it back when Wolf Blitzer was was that 2003 or was that the Kuwait War? I think Wolf it was Blitzer the Kuwait has War. Been doing uh, this it was the since invasion. The early 90s. It was the invasion of Kuwait, I believe it was. Well, the, Wolf Gulf Blit- War, the, Gulf the Gulf War, where uh, where Wolf Blitzer was in a hotel, I believe, in Kuwait. Maybe it was. I, am, I, am I confusing this? Am I conflating it? Kuwait <clears> and the Gulf War. He was a war correspondent. Uh, yeah, yeah. He and was he was making yeah. his hay as you know Wolf Blitzer with a. You know, with a vest and like one of those fishing vests or a reporter vests that they wear. You know, I got my recorder here and I got my pen over here and I got no problem with that vest, actually. I love that vest. Um, but uh, this is where he made and this is where in many respects CNN sort of made their mark. And so there's something built into the DNA of CNA that just sort of is craven in their desire and voracious in their desire for a new war. And here is Glenn Greenwald on with Brian Statler, who apparently thinks that Glenn Greenwald is just shilling for the president, <laughs> uh, apparently, which is hilarious because, again, you know, look, do five minutes of worth of research. It doesn't take much. What did they, didn't they come up with like a whole name for like uh, Glenn Greenwald, like Emo Progs, or wasn't there some other like name that they emo had? Emo Prog, that was for it. for 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 people who maligned Obama. Uh, uh, it, it's uh, unbelievable. Here here is Glenn Greenwald uh, telling um, the uh, media host Brian Statler on his CNN program that uh, CNN has been really um, excited about war. You've said this week that the media is trying to stoke that id part of our brain, the part that wants uh, fiercer military action against ISIS. You've said the press is even hungry for war. How do you back up that assertion? The lesson that the American media supposedly learned after the 9-11 attack was that allowing political and military and intelligence officials to make all kinds of claims without scrutinizing and questioning and pushing them back is a really destructive thing to do. It it propagandizes the population. It leads to things like torture, Guantanamo, the attack on Iraq based on false pretenses, and I think you've seen that exact behavior, um, but even worse, from the overwhelming majority of the media in the last nine even, days since the Paris attack. Even and worse. It, unfortunately, Brian, I, I actually... Well, I think that CNN has actually unfortunately led the way in this. You have had one uh, intelligence official with the CIA or formerly with the CIA after the next gone on air, able to say all kinds of extremely dubious claims that print journalists have repeatedly... Done in Bloomberg News and the New Yorker on the New York Times editorial page are totally false. Um, and so you're specifically talking like about encryption. Journalists are afraid 
talking about encryption, about why this terrorist attack happened, about more powers that are needed, about the need to go in and attack um, and attack ISIS with ground troops as well. But I do think that that's the other aspect is there has been this really alarming anti-Muslim climate cultivated in this country, not just by Republican candidates like Donald Trump talking about making them carry ID cards and putting them in databases and closing mosques, but by the American media itself. And I think the worst example, probably the most despicable interview we've seen in the last several years, were two CNN anchors, John Ballison and Sasha Issey, who told a French Muslim political activist that he and all other Muslims bear, quote, responsibility for the attack in Paris because all Muslims must somehow be responsible. You could but never there is a difference between group. asking Neither questions and making statements. You say they told him that. They were they asking made, a series they, of questions. No, I know they, it went viral online. No. No, no. They made statements both when he was on and then after he left. They said the word responsibility comes to mind. Yeah, and, you know, just even that... Um, <laughs> Even that sort of framing, they were just asking questions. Yes, like, well, have you stopped beating your wife lately? That's just a question. Are you scared of the Muslims in your neighborhood? Right. It's just right. an inquiry. Are you afraid that someone's going to realize that you're not really qualified for that job? Sam, when you beat your wife, do you prefer to use objects or just your fists? Um, do you think that um, as people watch you on your television show, they're going to find out that your cousin is a high place to see an official? Where do the good people go? I've been changing channels. I don't see them on the TV show. Where do the good people go? We got heat. Last week, the House passed legislation introduced by Republican lawmakers to restrict Iraqi and Syrian refugees from resettling here in the U.S. The Republican measures would require individual sign-offs by top federal officials for every person from Iraq and Syria seeking refugee status. President Obama's vowed to veto the legislation if it reaches his desk. This comes as governors of at least 31 states have said they will not accept the refugees. This is Alabama Governor Robert Bentley thing that I want to do as governor is to make sure the people of Alabama are safe. And if there is any, if there's even the slightest risk uh, that people who are coming in from Syria are not the types of people that we would want them to be, uh, then we can't take that chance. Recent tweet that went viral drew a historical parallel with a different refugee crisis the country faced, this time in the 30s, when Jewish refugees sought refuge here. A Case Western Reserve University history professor named Peter Shulman tweeted a Fortune magazine poll question from 1939 that read, quote, should the U.S. government permit one should the U.S. government permit 10,000 mostly Jewish refugee children to come in from Germany? The results showed overwhelmingly the respondents said we should keep them out. 
Um, among those denied entry was Anne Frank, who famously wrote about her experience in hiding from the Nazis in the diary of Anne Frank. Documents released in 2007 show her father, Otto Frank, tried repeatedly to escape to the United States and Cuba before he was denied, and the family went into hiding. Part of the ordeal faced by Jewish refugees during and after World War II was portrayed in the 1976 film Voyage of the Damned. The film is based on the true story of the 1939 voyage of the MS St. Louis, which sailed for Havana from Hamburg, Germany, carrying 900 Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis. The Cuban government refused entry to the passengers, so the ship made its way to the United States, where the Coast Guard delivered the following message as portrayed in this clip from the film. Attention, Captain St. Louis. You are violating U.S. territorial limits. Do not approach any closer. Do not attempt to land. You will not, repeat not, be permitted to dock at any United States port. Acknowledge. Signal. Message received and acknowledged. A clip from the 1976 film Voyage of the Damned. The ship was left with no choice but to return to Germany. A number of people jumped off the sides of the ship and drowned. Many hundreds of the German Jews who were returned to Germany were exterminated in the concentration camps. Well, for more, we're joined in Washington, D.C. by Ilya Lozovsky, an editor at Foreign Policy. He recently wrote an article in the Washington Post headlined, I'm a Russian-born American Jew. My people's rejection of Syrian refugees breaks my heart. Also in D.C., Ishan Theroux, a foreign affairs reporter for the Washington Post. His recent piece headlined, Yes, the comparison between Jewish and Syrian refugees matters. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Ishan, I want to begin with you. Talk about the original piece you wrote for the Washington Post. It went viral. How many hits? More than two and a half million hits on this one piece. Well, yes, good morning, Amy, and thanks for having us on. Uh, that piece I wrote, uh, based on the tweets that you cited by the by Peter Shulman, the the academic, uh, went viral. It was uh, last week around this uh, around this time, and it, it struck a nerve. This is just in the aftermath of the Paris attacks, and a moment when the conversation about refugees was just whirring up uh, in the U.S. and and it really it was a very simple piece citing these polls and citing uh, the way in which public opinion then seem to reflect public opinion now. Uh, the analogy between uh, what we saw in the 1930s and what we're going through right now is obviously an imperfect one. Obviously, no one's completely drawing a, a totally com uh, identical parallel between Jewish refugees and Syrian refugees. The point is, of course, that the, the nativist response then has very clear echoes now. Explain what the poll asked in 1939. Would you accept 10,000 Jewish refugee children here fleeing from the Nazis? Right. So this is a poll that was done by Gallup uh, in early 1939 uh, at a time when there was about to be a conversation in the U.S. about bipartisan legislation uh, regarding a bill that proposed letting in 20,000 refugee children from Europe. Presumably this meant refugee, Jewish refugee children, but that distinction wasn't totally clear at the time. Uh, so, so, and there was this poll, as you cited, that where I think more than two-thirds of the respondents uh, pretty much said, no, don't let them in. Uh, 
Uh, and and this, this reflected, yes, rank anti-Semitism at the time, but also reflected other fears over immigration, over the perceived ideological threat that these alien refugees posed, and it reflected, by and large, it's just the, the general nativism of the moment. Uh, the, the, the bipartisan legislation that I mentioned didn't pass as well. It was met by all sorts of opposition across the country, uh, with politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, making arguments that we hear now, we have, at least we hear echoes of those arguments now, talking about so this being the first plank to a, a communistic takeover of, of, of the U.S., talking about the, the threat of, of, you know, disguised Nazi agents coming, coming among the Jewish ranks. Hmm. Uh, and so, so all this language of, of, of subversion, of fear of security threats, was very much heard then at the time as well. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So here in the United States, our reaction to Paris has been uh, in some ways unfortunate. Uh, The attacks were horrific, and we should take action to find the people who did it. Bring them to justice. Some uh, are already, of course, caught and killed. Uh, some blew themselves up. Uh, but there's an international manhunt for some of the others in Europe. So our reaction here in the U.S. by some of the governors is, okay, panic. Uh, we're closing our own internal borders within the states. But not to ISIS against Syrian refugees. Okay, so here are the number of states who have already done that immediately, you know, right after the attacks in Paris, Alabama, Michigan, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Massachusetts. They now have a Republican governor. Congratulations. Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. All saying, we will not be taking Syrian refugees. First, let's quickly point out that the Syrian refugees are running from ISIS. Those are the guys who are running away from them. Well, ISIS could sneak some people in. Apparently, ISIS could get a whole bunch of people who were born and raised in France, which is the majority of the attackers in the Paris attacks, to do their bidding for them anyway. So they could also do it with people that are already in the country. So they don't need to sneak refugees in. The overwhelming majority of them are, by the way, some of them are Christians and Muslims, because I know, like, Muslims, no sympathy. Oh, probably bad guys. Ooh, Christian refugees. I didn't think about that. Oh, we should let those guys in. In fact, that's what Ted Cruz said. 
Ted Cruz said, well, I mean, Muslims, obviously, we're going to block. But if there are any good Christian refugees, those guys we should let in. Great, a religious test. Wonderful. Uh, got the American ideal right there, Ted. There was a, a, a governor that stood against the time, though, Tom Wolf from Pennsylvania. He said, we must not lose sight of the fact that families leaving Syria are trying to escape the same violence and unimaginable terror that took place in Paris and Beirut. That is exactly right. Uh, Governor Wolf with some real courage here in America. Now, another guy who backed that claim up was President Obama, also partly referring to Cruz, saying we should let in the Christians but deny the Muslim refugees running away from ISIS. By the way, speaking of which, the last three out of four major attacks across the world that ISIS has done has been at mosques. There's 43 people killed in Beirut, uh, mosque attack in Iraq, mosque attack in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact, 82, to, according to a counterterrorism report here in the U.S., back in 2011, latest numbers we had, 82 to 97 percent of the victims of al-Qaeda back then, and, and similar numbers, I imagine, for ISIS today, is fellow Muslims. So they kill Muslims more than anything else. That's why the Muslims are running away from them. You see, there's a war there and where ISIS is killing other Muslims. I say 82 to 97 based on those 2011 numbers. But the reality is today is the numbers are almost certainly much, much higher. There's some Yazidi in there. There's some Christians in there. But overwhelmingly, they hit Muslims. That's why the Muslims are trying to come to a place of hope called America. That's what President Obama emphasizes as well. When I hear political leaders suggesting that there would be a religious test for which person who's fleeing from a war-torn country is admitted when some of those folks themselves come from families who benefited from protection when they were fleeing political persecution that's shameful that's not American it's not who we are we don't have religious tests to our compassion now, if you're a true Christian, what do you think about that? I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but first, let me quote uh, a woman that came here to America from France, the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it says on her plaque, here at our sea-washed sunset gates, she'll stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. The name of the Statue of Liberty, Mother of Exiles as now all these shameless governors across the country tell us that we should reject the exiles. We should listen to the French and what they originally said when they sent the Statue of Liberty over. By the way, these are the same Republicans who told us we should change the name of French fries to Freedom Fries, and that the French didn't know what they were doing And uh, when they told us not to go into the Iraq War. It turns out the French did know what they were doing. If we had listened to them in the first place, there probably would be no ISIS today if we didn't unnecessarily start that war in Iraq. But at the time, right-wing talk shows were pouring French wine into the gutters. And they were calling John Kerry French. Tom DeLay, Republican leader at the time, would start every speech with, as John Kerry would say, bonjour. <laughs> they love to make fun of the French. Today they turn around and say, oh yes, we are with our oldest ally, France. No, you're not. You've made the fun of the French your whole life. You've been derisive towards them when they try to help us as a friend to get us out of that mess that we were getting ourselves into with Iraq. 
You slapped him across the face. So save me your crocodile tears about how much you love France, okay? That's not remotely true. One more quote from the Statue of Liberty in case you're confused. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's what America stands for. And if you're a true Christian, then I would point you towards Psalm 82.3.4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So, if you think ISIS is the wicked, then I think this is the time to rescue people from the wicked. Whether you're a true Christian or a true American is up to you. I adopted Ellis Island in a city of light and spire. I wandered to the valley of red hot steel and fire. We made the steel that built the cities from the sweat of our two hands. And I made my home in the American land. There's diamonds in the sidewalk, there's colors, line, and song. refugees they're coming to get us or are they tanner what's going on with this story they are not coming to get us of the hundreds of thousands of refugees admitted since 9-11 three have proven to have any terror links and they were very weak and we got them all so that we can dismiss as hysteria from the beginning but that hasn't stopped a lot of politicians from posturing on this issue we got over half of governors saying they won't take any syrian refugees in their states we got donald trump saying muslims need to register and wear identification possibly we have the mayor of roanoke calling for basically internment camps reminiscent of the japanese some would just say roanoke is an internment camp like how are you (laughs) how are you from such a place like calling for so much go ahead Tanner. i'm sorry oh the last the most ridiculous well most ridiculous being a relative term uh bush and cruz calling for some kind of religious test that we only let in christian refugees as opposed to muslim and of course this is now you get the the backlash to that from right-thinking Americans, uh, you referenced Obama on Twitter saying this is un-American. He said, offensive and contrary to American values. My Facebook feed is full of all my Facebook friends saying, Hey, Trump and Carson, look at the Statue of Liberty we got. Well, give us your tired and unwashed. So those are our values, and so on and so on. But it strikes me that we've been having these nativist panics since the country was born. Mm-hmm. It's this constant tension and push and pull of this country. You have waves of immigrants come in. You have nativist pushback. Should we call this nativist panic un-American, or should we say that it is, in fact, very American? Oh, How yeah. do you define America, and were there nativist panics before when they were actually indigenous people here and they should have been actually right there should have been a nativist panic among, among the natives <laughs> yeah. yo it's our illegal immigration exactly Name this panic for us and we don't even get to do it yeah exactly <laughs> <Messed> <laughs> <up>. <laughs> somebody should have invented this for us but is this a natural condition of being the kind of country should we should we be outraged at these people and calling them cowards and racists or should we be acknowledging that okay it's like a 50-year flood. It just seems to happen. So it's part of our national character. But when the flood hits, you still need to do everything you can to minimize the damage. And you put up the sandbags, and you try to drain the sewage systems, and you let people know it's coming, and you, you take reasonable precautions. And so 
even if it is a natural cyclical thing, our standard shouldn't be this is truly American. Our standard should be the Constitution says a lot of beautiful things that are not realized in what it is to be American, but we aim for it, or we say we aim for it. And so even if the realness is that America is just an ugly place filled with hateful, ignorant people most of the time who occasionally do something beautiful and non-tragic, that's not like a good marketing campaign. And that doesn't inspire people to be great. <laughs> so I, I would rather believe that we motivate people by appealing to that positiveness of the president's tone of like, look, this is what it means to be in this country. Here are some of the facts. And, and like we did with the Ebola nonsense that was happening to rather than, oh, yeah, this is just what we do. Like, we're just hateful people. So, yeah, sorry, Syria. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell your senator to make refugees welcome and support the International Rescue Committee. Disgracefully, Congress and many of our Republican governors are attempting to turn their backs on people seeking political asylum during a time of war. On our November 24th episode, I asked you to sign a letter to Congress sponsored by The Nation magazine and to contact Congress directly. But if signing a letter and sending a few tweets or making some phone calls left you somewhat unsatisfied as the villainization of refugees continued unabated, then today's activism is for you. The International Rescue Committee is a nonprofit founded at the request of Albert Einstein, who was himself a refugee. Their mission is, quote, to respond to the world's worst humanitarian crises and help people to survive, recover, and gain control of their future, unquote. At the IRC site, rescue.org, you can donate and sign their petition, Tell Your Senators to Make Refugees Welcome, which asks Congress to support Syrian and Iraqi refugee resettlement. Also, through their homepage or by going directly to gifts.rescue.org, you can choose a specific gift to send to a refugee. Select from items like blankets, temporary shelters, light, emergency medical supplies, and more. Not that we should need a direct tie to a cause to feel compassion and want to help, but certainly if you need one, the refugee crisis in Syria and the surrounding area is a situation the U.S. is at least partially responsible for. We have a humanitarian obligation to do what we can to alleviate the suffering we had a hand in creating. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If supporting those in the most desperate of circumstances matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the International Rescue Committee's efforts to help Syrian and Iraqi refugees via social media so that others in your network can speak up and give too. Can you take a patch of wasteland and blonde roses so so sweet? Can you take a crying baby and rock him to his sleep? Can you feed a hungry child, give a stranger your smile, or when seeing someone riled, make their anger meek and mild? Well then you could make a difference in this fickle world of change.
If you'd held out any hope that Donald Trump had some line that he wouldn't cross in demonizing Muslims, well, I'm sorry, uh, our ability here to predict the next crazy thing that he'll say, the next crazy policy he'll advance, I cannot actually come up with anything crazier than what you're going to see coming out of this interview that he had uh, with Yahoo. So he said, we're going to have to do things that we never did before. And some people are going to be upset about it. But I think that now everybody is feeling that security is going to rule. And certain things will be done that we never thought would happen in this country in terms of information and learning about the enemy. He speaks about it as if it's a good thing. And so we're going to have to do certain things that were frankly unthinkable a year ago. In response to that, Yahoo News asked Trump whether this level of tracking that he'd been talking about might require registering Muslims in a database or giving them a form of special identification that noted their religion. He wouldn't rule it out. Oh, oh my God. So I, I think everybody talking. knows that security is going to rule. That's Mussolini. That is a fascist dictator speaking there. Yeah. So uh, are we at the end of fascism where there are no rights left and there's gas chambers? No, we're not at the end of fascism. So we don't want to speak in hyperbole in that sense. Are we at the beginning of fascism where you start to give people ID badges and start to separate them out by religion? Well, that is what Trump just said yeah. he would like to do, right? And so, and, and if you're not familiar with history at all, that is exactly what the fascists did in Germany, yeah. where they separated out people based on religion. They had a national database, right? And, and you had to have the right papers. And then they started putting badges on them. Yeah. I can't believe Trump would say, yes, we should consider putting badges on people. Would you like them to be in the form of a star or a triangle? Which one would you like, Donald Trump? Yeah. So we've got some historical information for you. So this is coming from the Holocaust Center. Uh, the German government's policy of forcing Jews to wear identifying badges was but one of the many psychological tactics aimed at isolating and dehumanizing the Jews of Europe, directly marking them as being different, i.e. inferior to everyone else. Anytime you force someone, like they did in Arizona, to carry their paperwork, it's to remind them every day that they do not belong in your society. Going on, uh, it allowed for the easier facilitation of their separation from society and subsequent ghettoization, which ultimately led to the deportation and murder of six million Jews. Now, more specifically, criminals were marked with green inverted triangles, political prisoners with red, asocials including uh, Roma, nonconformists, vagrants with black, in the case of Roma and some camps, brown triangles, homosexuals were identified with pink triangles, and Jehovah's Witnesses with purple ones, giving an idea of the number of different groups that were marked for uh, differentiation. The two triangles forming the Jewish star badge would both be yellow unless the Jewish prisoner was included in one of the other prisoner categories. For example, uh, if they were a political Jewish prisoner, they would be a yellow and a red triangle. And so now we have proposed ID. We have, you cannot, uh, you can't be a, uh, the, the president. Ben Carson said that. You shouldn't run for office. So being barred from inclusion in civil society, which was done to the Jews in the lead up to World War II. Uh, we've got, we're going to show you in a minute the setting up of the camps. We've got the IDs. We've got a uh, talk on Fox News and uh, with Donald Trump of shutting down the entire religion. Just shut down all the mosques. Don't allow in any refugees that have that religion. Have a religious test. What else is there? I honestly can't come up with anything. And by the way, of course, in Europe and Germany in specific, they started shutting down the synagogues and then burning down the synagogues. But in the beginning, they didn't say they were going to burn down the synagogues. They just needed to track them, right? And in the beginning, when they started putting badges on people, they didn't say, oh, we're going to put badges on people so we can murder them all or take them in the gas chambers. They said, oh, we just need to identify them 
and it's just to know who they are, right? Because it's a possible threat. We have to be yeah. careful. So it's not like they started in a different way. It's not like they announced that from day one we will, you know, murder six million Jews, thirteen million people overall. They didn't say that, right? That came a little later. Yeah. But the beginning was nearly identical. Yeah. Uh, so I, I referenced the fact that there there could be camps. Uh, and so this is coming from Senator uh, uh, Elaine Morgan of Rhode Island, uh, a Republican. He says, the Muslim religion and philosophy is to murder, rape, and decapitate anyone who is non-Muslim. She added that if the U.S. does take in Syrian refugees, we should set up refugee camps to keep them segregated from our populace. I can see taking Syrian refugees in, but keeping them all centralized. It sounds a little barbaric, isn't she merciful? But we need to centralize them and keep them in one central area. Now, she said that that was just her first draft. In her second draft, she was going to say the Muslim extremist philosophy. But in this draft, she says the Muslims all want to kill and murder you and, and rape you and behead you. It's funny. Again, there we go. People forgetting that people didn't mean all Muslims. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they just All of a sudden, they do mean all Muslims. Yeah, I wonder how that happened. Yeah. We had the, the mayor saying that uh, the, the, the internment of the Japanese, that's a model for what we could do with the Syrians here. And this uh, Republican legislator in Rhode Island is... Interesting. She admits it's barbaric. Yeah. She's like, it's a little barbaric, but let's do it anyway. Yeah. Right. So that's where we are today. So you know, we don't even have to call it barbaric. They call it barbaric and say, let's do it. Right. Yeah. yeah well, in a central area, maybe like a camp, we gather all all the people from one religion. But remember, everybody, this religion is really dangerous. Now, do you think the Germans said that Judaism was lovely when they put the badges on people? No, they did this. They did propaganda, and they said, this religion, Judaism, is really dangerous. Yeah. This is a threat to our nation. We've got great devaluation of our currency, and it's the bankers who are doing it. In this case, what they were they were like Jewish bankers and Jewish merchants, and etc. And they said, this is the dangerous religion. That's why we have to put badges on it. Now we have people saying, well, that's obviously wrong in propaganda, when we say this religion is the yeah. real danger, not some of them, but all of them, yeah. right? Well, that's completely different. I got yeah. bad news for you. It isn't completely different. It's actually very, very similar. Yeah, no, I, look, I don't, think, I don't think that Trump wants to kill every Muslim, although he did respond to that guy saying we might have to get rid of them all, and he seems to be willing to banish them all. Uh, I assume that he's simply being uh, a Republican politician who's taking advantage of the fact that the Republican primary voters are some of the most barbaric, bloodthirsty people in history, perhaps. Uh, a quarter in a recent poll agreed that all mosques should be shut down. A quarter of Republican primary voters say we should make a religion illegal in America. I mean, you ban the religion, you say we should put the people in camps, we should identify them all, we should have a database. If they weren't so pro-gun, you don't think that they would have said we should disarm them all already? <laughs> but, well, but if what, this isn't scary, what is scary? But John, what did, what did Hitler do? He brought in and he loosened gun regulation for Germans and, and, yeah. and Christians, right? Uh, but for German Jews, he said, okay, you can't have the guns. So, and what are they doing here now? Muslim free zones in some of the guns uh, shops That's true in America. In That's true. So now the government isn't doing it, although Trump's running to be the head of our government, yeah. right? But already some people are saying, no, no, no. Everyone but the Muslims get the yeah. guns. Now, the, the the one distinction is that the NRA is uh, and the gun manufacturers are uh, thirsty for cash in a way that the German gun industry perhaps wasn't, which is why they have fought attempts to stop people from on the terrorist watch list from getting guns. So they love guns more than they hate terrorists. Yeah. 
That's a distinction. But this is this is scary stuff. And we're we're still months away from the first primary, let alone the general election. Trump's now at forty two percent in in the Republican primaries. He's pulling away from the from the rest of them. Okay. So that doesn't mean that he's gonna definitely win. But this guy is a clear number one in a field of now down to 14, it was 117. And a clear 14 Republicans in, a, in that field. He's a clear number one as he brings these ideas up in public. And those ideas aren't hurting him, they're helping him. And remember, look, it's one, okay, let's target the Muslims, let's target the Mexicans. Maybe different badges for those two. Talks about China right. all the time. Right. Screw Maybe China. One, one gets a triangle, another one gets a star. Okay. And he labels one of them dangerous as a, a, in whole. The other he labels criminals and rapists. Okay. Yeah. And then at one of his rallies, as we covered the other day, a Latino guy protesting him gets his not only his sign torn up as a bunch of them did, but thrown to the ground, pummeled as a crowd uh, forms around the guy assaulting the, the Mexican-American, American citizen, and starts chanting, USA, USA. Now that is the sound of fascism beginning here in America. If you want to deny it, that's up to you. But that's exactly how fascism starts. Welcome, everyone. It's good to be back from after the holidays. For today's voicemails, I think it's particularly fitting for these to be uh, the first after the uh, the holiday break, and it needs a little bit of context, so I'm going to back the story up a little bit, catch everyone up. But it's fitting for, especially for anyone you know like me, whose family pretty much agrees politically. You know, if you saw your family over the holiday and you didn't have a argument about politics, uh, then you're kind of missing out on that that particular portion of uh, holiday tradition. And uh, and so I think it's nice that we have a little argument going on among our own little family here. So to back things up, a couple of weeks ago, I made an episode about uh, the violence of police in schools, you know, and the story was focused primarily on one single incident that was particularly horrifying. And that started a conversation about the efficacy of police in schools. So our resident conservative Wade called in, said, but, you know, basically, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think things are getting taken a little bit uh, to the extreme here. Just go on YouTube, for instance, and, and type in, uh, oh, I don't know, World Star Hip Hop School Fights. And you're going to be spending all day with all the videos that come up. That's why police officers are in school. You know, you have to have some type of order and some type of security. The message went on from there another minute or two, and he's basically making the point that, you know, cops are in school for a reason. We have some students, some schools that have problems with violence, and so we need some sort of security. Uh, he says that people wouldn't be happy with, uh, you know, teachers having that sort of authority to, you know, manhandle students, and so that's why it needs to be a police officer, and so on. That, that's pretty much his point. But, you know, as you heard there, and I can attest for the rest of the message, he didn't bring up race. He was just talking about kids in general, schools in general. And so I responded to him at the time, and then also Elka from Fort Wayne called in to respond later. The question that Wade needs to ask himself is, why is he watching World Star Hip Hop 
and pretending as if that is some sort of representation of, of what's going on in the black community in America. That's a far more important question for him to be asking himself right now. So that sounds like a pretty cut and dried misrepresentation of what Wade was saying. I think it's totally fair to point that out. And unsurprisingly, Wade called in to make that exact point. I went back and listened to my, my original voicemail, and I never said the word black. So my question to Elka is, how did you take my comments for me putting up a representation of the entire black community? Like I said, I think it's perfectly fair to acknowledge that Elka's comments seem to be a misrepresentation of what Wade was saying, and actually since both of them have been calling into the show for years now, I sort of feel like I can listen between the lines a little bit, and my instinct is to give the benefit of the doubt. So my guess, you know, I don't know, but my guess is that Elka probably misheard or misremembered Wade's comments and and had them colored by race because the story itself was very much colored by race and police interactions with the public and with you know students in particular is entirely colored by race even if Wade's comments in particular weren't so i, I can sort of see how those wires we get crossed. I sort of did the same thing to Katie not too long ago. Uh, Katie called in to talk about uh, poverty, and she mentioned, like, this was a mental health check to discuss poverty. And because there is such a strong link between mental health and poverty, I got my wires crossed, and I thought her primary focus was to talk about mental health. And so I just sort of misremembered and got things jumbled up. And so when I responded and I gave my comments, I talked about it as though the primary focus was for mental health care and that was not her primary focus. So it didn't really change the point I was making or, or, you know, what I would have said, but I certainly misrepresented what Katie was saying because there were two ideas very closely connected that even though she didn't connect those ideas exactly, I connected them myself. Anyway, it is perfectly reasonable for Wade to be frustrated that he was misrepresented. C'est la vie. Uh, But the next message that I'm going to play actually takes a stronger stance against Wade with more emphasis on race and I think it is more fair. So let's see if we can square that circle. All right, what's going on, gang? Uh, so, Wade, on uh, the Best of the Left program, he uh, thinks that white men with guns are the best thing to be around black children. At what point in the history of intercontinental white supremacy have white men with guns been a good thing to be around black children, black teenagers, black adults, the black elderly? At what point have white men with guns been a good thing, Wade? I'll wait. I'll wait. Another thing that I keep hearing, um, it's like across the board, even in um, a recent episode that I heard of the uh, Best of the Left program, and uh, one of the clips, like somebody talked about restoring trust with police and the black community. At what point in the history of intercontinental white supremacy, uh, this is William J. Jackson again, by the way, I called about Shoshana Roberts before, um, at what point in the context of intercontinental white supremacy have um, people of African descent had any reason to trust white men with guns and authority? I'll wait. I'll wait. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, so, no, Wade. Uh, white men with guns have always been a horrific problem. And you 
are actively engaging in white supremacist behavior. You are actively being a white supremacist, suggesting that white men with guns should be around black children or black teenagers, black adults, or the black elderly. They are the problem. As William J. Jackson, about an episode late, responding to Wade, no, white men with guns around black people of any age are not the answer. They're the problem. They always have been. Okay, somebody dropped the white supremacy bomb. It's time for everyone to freak out. Uh, I have no doubt that William is confident that his words can stand on their own, but I'm going to add some thoughts of my own uh, that I hope are clarifying. First of all, a quick refresher on what people mean nowadays when they refer to white supremacy. Uh, the quick version is that it's not just referring to Klansmen anymore. Tim Wise is a white anti-racist educator and author, and this is what he has to say on his Frequently Asked Questions page on his website. He's asked the question, I read somewhere that you admitted to being a white supremacist. What did you mean? And he says, my quote-unquote admission of white supremacy is far less interesting than some have made it seem. A year or so ago, I was asked during a radio show whether I was a racist slash white supremacist, and I answered yes, because, as I note above, all of us have internalized aspects of racist thinking thanks to years of conditioning in that regard. I felt it would be dishonest to deny this conditioning, which is something liberal and left whites often do, by denying that we have, quote, a racist bone in our bodies, unquote. So I told the truth. Unfortunately, because of the way we sometimes hear and interpret the terms racism and white supremacy, some who learn of this quote-unquote confession assume I am admitting to being a closet skinhead or that I don't really oppose the system of white supremacy as I claim this assumption is false. He goes on and says that I admit that as is true with any white person raised in a racist slash white supremacist society, I have internalized certain racist and white supremacist thoughts slash beliefs slash norms, etc. But the fact that I have been conditioned to do thing X or to believe thing Y doesn't mean that I can't challenge that conditioning and choose to do thing Z or believe thing Q. I also insist for myself and others that although we have internalized white supremacy, this does not mean that all we are capable of is white supremacy. People are not one-dimensional. Just as we are all conditioned in the society to be consumers and tend to engage in consumerism to one degree or another, it is also the case that we can choose to fight consumerism and materialism and minimize the extent to which we practice it. Or, as men, we are conditioned to be sexist towards women under a patriarchal system, but we can choose to fight for gender equality and to challenge male domination. People have more agency and are not mere robots, unable to turn against that which we are taught. Okay, so that's Tim Wise's take on it. And, you know, so first of all, being white supremacist or supporting white supremacy doesn't have to mean that a person's actions are intentionally racist. They can be born out of ignorance or apathy. Basically, if the status quo of any given system is inherently racist to the benefit of white people, which is almost always the case, and you're not actively fighting against it, then you are, by definition, if only tacitly, supporting white supremacy. So back to Wade. He wasn't talking about race. He was only talking about violent students in general, who he says need to be controlled by the police. But one doesn't have to talk about race in order for race to be a factor. We've all heard the stats before. Children of color are more likely to be suspended from school, more likely to be seen as older than they really are by about five years. That's how, you know, like a 
twelve year old looks like he's eighteen or twenty one. Uh, they're more likely to be seen as a threat and so on. The police in society and in schools have all been raised in the same racist culture that the rest of us have, so they have all of the same misconceptions about people of color, except only worse, because most of them have ended up on patrol in poor areas filled with black and brown people whose poverty is driven by racism very often and whose poverty then drives them to crime. And so the cops see black and brown people committing crimes, and it further solidifies the racist biases that they already had. So sure, Wade didn't mention race, and he later went on to say that both predominantly white schools and predominantly black schools have police in them, and William's point was all about keeping white men with guns away from black children. Uh, So on the surface, it sounds like another unfair criticism or misrepresentation of what Wade was saying, but the point is that the whole system of policing has white supremacy built into it because of the culture we're all born into and the inherent biases that get ingrained in all of us and police in particular. So if you support putting police in schools, even if you think they should be in all schools, not just schools full of black and brown kids, then you're still supporting a policy that is going to negatively affect the lives of these children of color at a disproportionate rate compared to the white kids with cops in their schools, making it a white supremacist policy by definition. And one last thing to remember, a policy or a system can still be racist or white supremacist even if every single person administering that system is adamant that they are not racist and insists that they have no interest in racism. It is certainly possible and very often the case that people are simply ignorant to the racist outcomes that seemingly race-neutral actions or policies can have. So, as an example, a school superintendent might have nothing but the best of intentions and be horrified at the idea that children of color might be disadvantaged by the presence of police on campuses, but if they aren't aware of those facts and don't act on them, then they can end up supporting a racist system without even knowing it to the detriment of the students they're trying to support. And that's why I say William's criticisms are more fair. So if you still want to support the idea of cops in schools for the sake of maintaining order, then at the very least, you must also say in the same breath that you demand extensive training, including a whole shitload of inherent bias training, so that every single cop in schools knows how to treat kids all exactly the same, no matter what color they are, and to treat all kids like kids rather than like criminals. Now, I do have a very positive update on the membership drive I have going for this last uh, month or so of the year, and I'm just going to wait to give you more details in the next episode. This one's gone kind of long. So if you want to support the membership drive, please go to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. I'm trying to get about 100 new members in this last month here to get us back on a very positive track. Things are going well, but you know we're not there yet. No no big deal. So if you want to support that or make a one-time donation, or whatever you feel like doing is very much appreciated. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, and of course to all of those who have already supported the show through the years by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every tuesday and friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com 
Stories and wonder.